This is the Shift Podcast. Thanks for checking out the Shift Daily Podcast. And on this episode, we embrace Canada's first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation with a conversation with Steve Sweetholt, a residential school survivor and a champion of a GoFundMe campaign that has raised over $150,000 to scan sites of former residential schools. Our friend Greg Fish is back to dive into why your genes rarely determine your fate and spark a new chapter in the ongoing nature versus nurture debate. And are you okay? with Eminem's mom's spaghetti. And what about haunted house actors that are taking method acting to the extreme? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay? Ah, Roberto. Yeah. Perfect on a beautiful Thursday. Are you okay with mom's spaghetti? Oh, it's like, why do you get spaghetti in a restaurant? There's no point. It's just better (laughs) if your mom makes it. That's how I feel about mom's spaghetti. A hundred percent concur with you, good sir. Uh, My my mama, Mama Jang, made the best spaghetti. And and there was something like she cooked the noodle until they were just so soft and and so mm, tender. And then the sauce, man, the sauce was good. And she would, and this is how I learned that I love peppers at an early age, because she would always like dice up some peppers and throw them in there. Usually when you have spaghetti, it's just spaghetti and pasta and maybe some meatballs, right? Well, you know, my my mom was just like, this is boring as heck. We're going to throw some peppers on these bad boy. And I was like, I love it. I absolutely love this. This is my spaghetti now. So yeah, I agree. Mama's Mama's spaghetti is the best. Uh, gentlemen working behind the board, any comments about the spaghetti by mother? Well, mother spaghetti was always the best. Um, it's, I, I've had I've, I've had other mothers spaghettis from other friends. How could you do and that it's, to it's your never, mother? It's never the same, though. It's never the same. <laughs> yeah, it's never the same. No, it's never the same. But you just appreciate that it was made by a mom. You know, that that's the beauty of it. Uh, Mr. Kelly, if you want to yell your answer, feel free. You can just bolt it out at, from the from the corner as the owl. Well, I love mom's spaghetti. It makes my knees weak and my palms sweaty. <laughs> oh, you're going to like this stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, 877-399-9898. Do you like mom's spaghetti? Well, we all know mom spaghetti for two different reasons our moms literally in the process of making dinner cooking us spaghetti and this Yo. his palms are sweaty knees weak arms are heavy there's vomit on his sweater already mom spaghetti he's nervous but on a he looks calm and ready to drop bombs, bombs, but he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. I could wrap the whole thing, by the yeah. way. Uh, but that, if you don't know, is an excerpt of Eminem singing uh, from Lose Yourself. Uh, a t- just a great title track for his movie, 8 Mile, which I believe came out in 2008. Don't yep. quote me. On. Okay, yep. great. Yeah, it was 2008. Uh, yep. Starring the late Brittany Murphy. Uh, Mackay Pfeiffer was in that. Just a wonderful yeah, film. Um, yeah. But there was that iconic line. So, Mom Spaghetti, uh, there's also this. Look, if you had Mom Spaghetti, would you capture it or just let it slip? 
Spaghetti comes once in a lifetime. Yes, that is that. that is the best edit, especially when he goes um, uh, and the whole crowd goes spaghetti like that. Spaghetti. It just works yeah. so well. All right, so uh, we're obviously having a little bit of fun here. Uh, Eminem's yes. restaurant, by the way, Marshall Mathers, a Grammy Award-winning artist, rapper. Uh, he's done film, great producer, also now a business owner opened a new restaurant called Mom's Spaghetti. Mm. Uh, they're going to open a permanent brick-and-mortar location in, where else, Detroit. It actually opened on Wednesday. The restaurant is a uh, offering a walk-up window, no drive through a walk-up window, and the trailer is the upstairs retail store within Union Assembly. Here's more from our friends at Fox 5. Get your sweaters ready, Detroit. Mom's Spaghetti is coming to 2131 Woodward Avenue. Want some road pasta after the game? Got that. Meatballs? You know we got that. What about the Sketty sandwich? Mom's got that too. Get ready to get some Mom's Spaghetti, Detroit. Opening in the alley next to the Union Assembly this September. 313-888-8388. Mom's Spaghetti. It's all ready. Ready, 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 ready. Ah, yeah, yeah. Today, that new restaurant opens here in Detroit, and maybe you can uh, lose yourself in one of its three menu options. Now, the concept is based on a line from the actual song, Lose Yourself, on the 8 Mile movie and soundtrack. And that's the reason for this interesting table manners at the beginning of that commercial. Nevertheless, Eminem, the Detroit area native, is opening Mom's Spaghetti here in downtown. The three menu options are only three. You might expect Mom's Spaghetti for $9. The $12 option includes meatballs. And then there's the Sketty Sandwich for 11 bucks. Love that. Love it. Just three things on the menu. What else do you want? It's Mom's it's- Spaghetti. It's yeah. mom's spaghetti with meatballs, and you get Sketty Sandwich, uh, which, by the way, is the a Skeddy great sandwich. name. Sketty Sandwich. It looks yeah. great, but the pictures, it just looks like a lot. It's literally just spaghetti lodged between garlic bread. Which is amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I, I did this it thing. It looks like a hassle. See, like, my, uh, okay, so my mom made great spaghetti, as I have already detailed. But one thing that we didn't really have in the Jang family household was garlic bread. But we loved garlic bread, so we just kind of made our own bread. We would just get toast put some butter on it, and then you just eat it with spaghetti on top. Like, I know it sounds a little strange because there's no garlic in there, but, man, it's good. Sign me up for Sketty. And sign me up for more restaurants that just offer three items on their menu because that's all you need. That's all you need. So uh, I've during... been a big fan of that lately. Yeah. Or the restaurants that only do, like, everything on the menu is five bucks. You don't get a huge oh, portion, yeah. but it's oh, only yeah. five bucks and the drinks are cheap. I like those places. We call that the famous warehouse in this part of the world, but uh, it's probably got different names. There's the dime, etc. But uh, no, I I do agree. Uh, Set prices, wonderful. Uh, During the pandemic, Shady Records, Eminem's record label, contracted with Union Joints to deliver Mom's Spaghetti to frontline workers and those administering uh, administering vaccinations at the TCF Center in Detroit. Mom's Spaghetti first launched as a pasta pop-up in 2017 at the shelter in Detroit, and it was part of Eminem's release of 
of revival. So there you go. Who would have thought Eminem one day restaurateur with mom's spaghetti? Wonderful stuff. Uh, we got time for one more in here. So let's bring back Roberto, if you will. Yeah. Roberto, by the way, his mom, not a huge fan of making spaghetti, more of a lasagna connoisseur. Are Whoa. you, yeah, I know. Are you okay with haunted houses? Definitely. Spooky. Yeah, very spooky. spooky. I was I was traumatized by not a very scary one at Callaway Park, which is a very small and, you know, okay roller coaster mm-hmm. park. In, it's close to the highway, Calgary. right? It's fine. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. It's going to be a good ride. Anyway, I, I used to get spooked about this one haunted house, so I didn't go to one for years. Mm. And then a couple of years ago, I was like, sure, I'll go back in. And God, it was so much fun. I love it. I love how creative people get with the decorations. Yeah. The absurd amount of money people spend to make their houses spooky. I appreciate it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Sheldon? I uh, I used to participate in in haunted houses and acting in them and and you know oh. partaking in the scare which was a lot of fun. So Ooh. you were the spooker, I was not the, the spooker. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what's even funnier to me is I, I found that even though I knew how all of these these haunted houses were were laid out and I knew where all the scary spots were, I still refused to walk through. Them. <laughs> <laughs> not for me. Fair, not for me. Fair enough. Because I, I knew what they were capable of. So it was uh, yeah, just. One step too far. I fair, think. fair. For, for me, um, I, I'm on the fence with haunted houses. Like, you know, if some yeah. are really extravagant, and we do have pretty good ones here in the Lower Mainland, uh, you know, uh, Fright Nights at the p uh, they go all out, usually pre-pandemic times. Uh, those ones are usually very detailed, and they always try to get the jump scare on you. But me as a person, whenever I even watch, like, scary movies, I, I don't fall to jump scares. What scares me is, like, heights. And unless your haunted house is elevating at like 12,500 feet in the air, um, probably not that scary for me, though I'll do it if my friends are going. And I'll also do it if I've had a shot of fireball, because that always that always helps. <laughs> I don't get liquid I'm, courage. Yeah. Uh, are you OK with haunted houses? Well, it is almost October, which means the spookiest time of year is just around the corner. People are already rushing to haunted houses to literally get their freak on. As in getting freaked out. Have you ever been to a really scary haunted house? Some of them are just really good. They've got these amazing sets. They've got all these realistic looking props. And of course, all the actors like Sheldon dressed up as spooky characters. However, sometimes these actors can get a little bit carried away. Maybe this was Sheldon in an earlier life. The actor accidentally poked his toe. He gets down low to the ground like a little troll and he pokes the ground with the knife. Got a little too close and an accident happened. Ooh, you do not like Ooh. when the words knife, poke, accident are all in the accident. same sentence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so get this. An actor, a 22-year-old Middleburg Heights, Ohio man, uh, was trying to scare people walking into the seven levels of hell haunted house. As an 11-year-old boy, 11, and a friend approached, the man scraped the ground with a real Bowie-style knife that he had actually brought from home. Here's more from WKYC Channel 3. Rodney Gifford, the owner of the attraction, says everyone uses rubber or latex props, but this was a freelance actor who went and got the knife from his car to make things more realistic. After police checked the situation out, the family declined further medical treatment. He didn't need any medical attention. Police asked for another Band-Aid. 
We put a Band-Aid, they put a Band-Aid on the foot. They went through the haunted houses. Last we seen them, they said they had a great time and left. We've been here 21 years. We have a very clean track record. We wouldn't be at a county fairgrounds 21 years if there's shenanigans happening. Keppert says the actor was let go and will not be back. Oh, man. Okay, so that boy, uh, a real trooper, uh, the boy's mother was called. She drove to the fairgrounds. Police asked her if she would take her son to the hospital, but the boy didn't want to go. He instead asked to go back into the haunted house. Uh, the actor acknowledged to police that using a real knife, probably not a great idea, didn't intend to hurt anybody. Police uh, eventually did confiscate that knife. So, Sheldon, we turn to you in all your years scaring people. Uh, were you ever allowed to bring actual weapons with you? No, we much preferred the plastic knives. Right. You know, the ones yeah, that you get at say. Zellers or Value Village. Yeah, those yeah. were definitely preferred at the uh, haunted houses that I participated in. Fair sure. enough. All right. Glad to know that you're doing it upright. Uh, that's not you in the story. I mean, Ryan, you're the one that found this particular story. Uh, would it give you a different <laughs> element just knowing like, oh, there's a 10% chance. Well, maybe that's a little too high. 2% chance <laughs> that somebody's actually going to stab me in this haunted house. Yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't go in, but I just <laughs> like, I know this person, like every drama club has like that one like person in it mm. who like thinks that because they method act, it makes them better at acting. You know, they yeah. get like all snobby about it. And I can just tell this kid right before he went to work was like, I'm going to push the boundaries today. People are going to know me for my work. And then they did because you almost stabbed a kid. So, right. Right. Not a great idea. General rule of thumb that I'll just use to summarize this particular story. Chances are, if you're ever thinking about bringing a knife to work, just just don't. There's really no good feasible reason why you should ever do that unless you are like a dog the bounty hunter or or maybe like the next crocodile dundee. That's the only exception where this might be permitted as everyday work tools. Otherwise, you know, just just don't. Just don't. Do what Sheldon did. Work in radio instead. This is the Shift Podcast. All right, very special guest uh, joining us on the program here tonight uh, as we get ready for the first ever, the inaugural version of the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, his name is Steve Sweethalt. Now, you may remember this name because earlier this year, Steve was part of a group that led a GoFundMe campaign to raise money and so that they could start scanning more sites suspected of being uh, uh, really unmarked grave sites at uh, former residential schools. Steve, it's a pleasure having you back here on the show. Uh, how are you doing today? I, I'm great. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to reach out. Absolutely. I mean, it's a very important thing to be talking about. Uh, really, that's the biggest point that I think everyone has been making since day one, uh, when we unfortunately heard the news that these uh, unmarked graves were discovered originally, is that this conversation needs to keep going. It can't just be token conversations to make people feel better. We need to make this part of our regular, everyday occurrence if we can. And Steve, I know when you started that GoFundMe campaign, you were hoping for a little bit of money, right? But in the end, you raised over $150,000. So can you give us the latest updates, the final number if you have it ready, and just how things have gone since you started creating that GoFundMe campaign? Yeah, no, sure, happy to. Uh, initially, when we did start, you're, you're exactly right. We uh, had a modest uh, amount of uh, $25,000 as our goal, and that was the three of us, Tom, Michelle, and myself, uh, in early June when we first put it together. 
very quickly it rose over you know $100,000 plus and then within 2 weeks it was uh 2 2 3 weeks it was sealing out at uh, just over $150,000 by the time we were done uh and started working on disbursement it had come down to about a hundred, just a little over $157,000. And that was minus, of course, the GoFundMe fees, which was, I think, around $4,000, a little bit more than that. So it brought it back a bit. Mm-hmm. But what we, what we did, though, is, is do some outreach work with, uh, with various First Nations here on Vancouver Island who had residential school sites on their, in their traditional territories. And uh, there was obvi- there was five locations on Vancouver Island uh, that uh, we reached out and made some phone calls and some emails to some of the leadership saying, you know, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Uh, there really is no bureaucracy or red tape. Uh, if you want to have the means to get started on finding our lost children, uh, we have a means to, to do so. And th- this was basically from the... the the hearts of, of Canadians across the country and to be honest, North America that reached out and wanted to put monies in. And even to this day, there's still, I just had an email yesterday saying, I wish I, you know, how can I help? How can I give more money? And, and it, it's an amazing uh, thing to see that people are still wanting to reach out. So we, we managed to uh, talk with Chief Louie in a house at First Nation who had two residential school, former sites in their traditional territory. Um, one that was right on Flores Island where a house it is, and one, I believe it was on Mears, and I think it was called Christie's Residential School. And uh, they uh, were very quick to take advantage of this opportunity to kickstart their searches and their work that they need to do. And in July, we dispersed uh, $75,000 to them and had a ceremony here in Victoria. Uh, right near Mungo Martin House. It was uh, a very emotional, very moving uh, ceremony. Uh, It wasn't an all-out celebration because we know the type of work that they're going to be doing. This is where uh, where we're we're pleased to be be able to do this, but at the same time, it's it's heart-wrenching knowing what what they may find. So um, it it was a really good start, and we were feeling pretty positive in in and around mid-July, early July, when we first uh, started working with the housing. So with them, they, they decided that they're going to hire a residential school coordinator. They could have done this by now uh, and, uh, you know, start working with the elders in the community, preparing the community, working with health officials, uh, preparing for pre- mentally preparing the, the, the community for what they might find. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of work and mental hardships when you kind of do this type of work, you know that there's going to be some mental anguish and uh, a lot of survivors in that territory and uh, intergenerational survivors is really hard to deal with. So we have to really think about what that impact will be on them. So a lot of mental health services will be provided, I believe, for that nation uh, as they start that work. And uh, also the responsibility of bringing in uh, an outside professional company that can actually do this work with the ground penetrating radar uh, they had some options in front of them. They decided as a nation that they wanted to go through this and have the expertise and skills and scientific background of these uh, of these experts that will be coming in to do that work. So uh, how's it's kind of gone in that direction? And uh, I know that they were hiring or they put an ad out looking for somebody, uh, a job posting rather, uh, looking for somebody to fill that position in June. So they, sorry, in July, they were really quick in, on their turnaround. 
I think it's very um, encouraging. Sorry, uh, Steve. I, I think it's very encouraging to see that uh, so many people wanted to donate. And to your point, Steve, about people um, you know, dealing with this as sensitively as we can, because you're right, it, it can be very hurtful, the emotions, the memories that come with it. Just a reminder, anyone experiencing that pain or that distress uh, can access a 24-hour toll-free confidential National Indian Residential School crisis line, one 925 4419. Uh, Steve, uh, to your point about how, uh, you know, some of these communities were so quick to uh, take on this opportunity and use the ground penetrating radar. Uh, do we know if, if any more discoveries have been made so far? Or are we still in the process of getting some of these things sorted out? As you mentioned, they're still looking for sort of like an expert uh, to sort of assist with this. Well, I think in, I can only speak to what I've heard from the house that I haven't officially heard of just in, in news releases and types of things I've been reading. Now, of course, when you're on social media, um, you know, across the country and, and even including, um, you know, the count uh, of people or unmarked graves that they found over the last while, um, I'm seeing numbers of 6,500 uh, abound, but there's nothing official um in terms of the count as of right now, I, I think the impactful ones that we heard earlier in the summer are the ones that that are targeted. I, I do see some stories happening out in the Mohawk Territory and other uh, um, nations across the country that are slowly starting to do this work. Um, but I know in a house that that is their plan to use the, the ground penetrating radar. It is the latest technology that is being done and used and has been used for the, the last number of years to uh, help identify locations for these unmarked graves. One of the things I'm curious about, Steve, is when people were originally making those donations, and I know you sort of described it came in fast and furious, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, were most of the donations based out of BC, uh, or did you see that the rest of the country was also very supportive and you got donations from individuals who might be living in Ontario or Saskatchewan or elsewhere across the country? Now, we were able to see uh, where people were donating from, and uh, that having that ability is really, um, you know, excellent for our metrics, and, and seeing that uh, the impact of this story when it first broke, um, and the, the news media coverage, uh, not only here in Canada, but internationally, I talked to uh, news agencies from London and the United States in, in New York, um, it, it was coming from quite a few places, and we know that uh, you know Michelle was covering most of this when this onslaught of cash started rolling in in June. That uh, we were keeping tabs on where those were, where the funds were coming from. So uh, we did have a lot of donors from Vancouver Island. Um, of course, that's where we're from and based. Uh, but there was a lot of, of donors from British Columbia as well, which was amazing. I mean, any donor that was putting towards this cause. Uh, there were so many heartfelt messages and a lot of messages of, of anger and dismay with our Canadian government and our colonial history. We were touched by some of the messaging that laid out. They had no idea that this was happening and, and why weren't we made aware and, and how could this happen to these children and why wasn't this brought out in, in the history books. And, you know, so many, uh, so many, so much uh, empathy and sympathy, but a lot of anger as well. So it was really interesting to read those hundreds of messages that we continued to get as we had this GoFundMe open. Well, to your point, I mean, you know, we're coming up on the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And to me, it presents itself that real opportunity to get 
this right, to get the history correct. And it's right there in the title, truth. So how important is it now moving forward that all of the public education systems across Canada fully embrace the ugly truth that existed within our country and begin teaching this and not just you know, sweeping it under the rug, uh, realizing that we live in a beautiful country, but it's a country marred with ugly history. And in order for us to improve as a society, we need to embrace that and hopefully learn from it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, you know, everyone makes mistakes. And even our old colonial governments uh, made, made mistakes. Johnny McDonald and uh, people uh, in power in early colonial Canada uh, and the legislation that was brought about to bring us uh, the residential school system and uh, the apartheid system, if you will, for First Nations people here in Canada. And it, it's been, you know, obviously made it a real challenge, but to see, um, you know, over a period of time that um, with uh, the movement, with the Orange Shirt Day and Truth and Reconciliation, that there's there's that understanding. And uh, we're, we're, you know, starting to see some more compassion from people. And uh, that uh, this this really did happen. This the, you can't have reconciliation without truth, and the truth is really hard and difficult to to listen to. But if you're a person who's had that lived experience, just try to imagine what that's like for us. And, and that is what I think most Canadians, British Columbians, uh, are starting to understand. And it's not going to happen on this first day of of truth and reconciliation. Um, but it's it's generational. This work is going to take some time. Uh, Senator Sinclair, who led the Truth and Reconciliation uh, work back in 20, you know, 2012 and onwards, 2010 and onwards, uh, said it uh, clearly that this is a generational movement that will take place. We're just kind of opening and peeling back the onion of, of history right now. And uh, it's early, very, very early. And I think Canadians, again, have to... Uh, prepare themselves for the hard truth as as each month and each year goes on as we find you know more of our unmarked graves very well said sir and uh, i'd just like to refer back to a comment that chief uh, roseanne cashmere uh, spoke uh, when there was the announcement about a week and a half ago uh, that when she speaks with uh, leaders from different indigenous groups now what she's been told is that for the first time in, in a very long time and maybe ever for some of these people it feels like they're finally being listened to. It, you know, the way she described it is that they're finally listening. You know, they're finally paying attention. And I can't imagine how that feeling must be like. So I just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, when you hear uh, Chief Casimir talking about that and knowing that these conversations are beginning to take place and we need more of it, don't get me wrong, but it's a good step forward. How encouraging is that to you? Well, you know, I, I'm very much an optimist, um, and I, you know, I, I, you know, I support what the chief has said. I, I think she's nailed it. They, they are, people are listening. Um, people are starting to understand. I, I don't think I've talked about this experience so much in my life uh, until this year. And, uh, you know, and I went through the TRC. Um, I gave testimony. I gave statements. I listened to statements in Victoria and Vancouver, impactful statements, uh, heart-wrenching statements uh, through the process and I thought okay here we go and then it just kind of died and went to sleep and uh, so here we are six years later after the final report and uh, the discovery of these unmarked graves in Kamloops to Schlepnik uh, it has really changed the the, the, the 
the direction we're going in this in this country. Um, I, I've used the term reckoning, and I think that's really where we are at. And um, I think it's a great time for Canadians, British Columbians, to embrace uh, the history, uh, as bad as it is, as hard as it is, and uh, take that time to get to know your First Nation neighbors um, and and know that. Uh, we are the way we are for reasons, and that is the oppression and the, the residential school system, the colonial background that we've been brought up in. It, it's made us very strong and thin, uh, sorry, thick-skinned. So it's it's a, a lot of understanding. You know, I'm asking people on this day uh, to you know to to stand beside us, walk with us, uh, be allies, and uh, and just know that we appreciate it. We're seeing it. We're talking about it on social media. And uh, it's really nice to see. Uh, he is Steve Sweethalt. And Steve, uh, I don't want to let this conversation end without also just bringing up, if it's okay with you, uh, and you can say no here, of course, uh, the fact that you also had experiences with the residential school system yourself. Uh, you were at one of these schools when you were just five years old. And uh, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe share that experience if, again, you're, you're willing to, uh, but to also uh, say how much I appreciate the fact that you've taken on this leadership role moving forward with the GoFundMe campaign and an understanding that there's a lot of work to be done. But I, I, I too, sir, share your encouragement uh, with the fact that things are already progressing the way we need things to. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you're right. I uh, I was an attendee at a residential school, Cooper Island Industrial Residential School, which is just off of Shimanis, uh, in Vancouver on Vancouver Island. Uh, I attended when I was five years old. Um, my sisters were there uh, with me, uh, but on the other side, um, I spent one year there. Uh, it, it, my story is, revolves around uh, uh, loneliness, uh, trying to trying to run away, trying to get off the island, and know that this island is surrounded by water. Um, you you can't really go anywhere. I, I ran away to the gym, tried to hide in the gym up in the stairs uh, a couple of times. Uh, you know, you're quickly found and uh, and punished, and, and that's that. You know, lightheartedly from my own story, and I can't compare mine to others. Um, that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, I was brought up by five sisters and uh, a single mom. And when you lose that environment of being loved as the only boy um, and then brought into that type of institution, it impacts you in a way that I'm still trying to come to grips with. Uh, and I'm 56. And I was one of the latter uh, students that attended the school. So just as things were starting to wind down in the residential school system, I was one of the last to kind of breeze through, if you will. Um, and so my experiences might not be as uh, as impactful or damaging as, as others, but, it, it, you know, it's passed on that 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 moment in history it never never leaves you it's impacted me in so many different ways and i begin to understand that more and more in my journey of healing so it, it was a very tough time and it's a tough time for all of our family my mom went my aunts and uncles went uh like i said my sisters went my stepsister my stepbrother went um chances are when you meet a first nations person in british columbia or canada they are impacted by residential school in one way or another or even went themselves I'm so sorry that you had to go through such experiences, not just you, of course, but your family. Uh, but with that said, Steve, uh, thank you for sharing that, because we need to hear more of these stories in order for us to get an understanding 
uh, of just what that experience would have been like. And hopefully, again, it just encourages more of these conversations and more people embracing the meaning and the reason as to why this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation is so important. Uh, thank you so much, sir. I really do appreciate your time with us here today. Thank you so much. This is The Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Ah, Mr. Fish. Greg. How's, how's it going? I'm doing all right. It's been a little while, so it's always nice to reconnect with uh, good friends and old friends of the show that I haven't had a chance to chat with for a little bit. So uh, how are things on your end? How, how are you holding up? Well, can't complain. I'm still here. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? We're still here. We got a job to do and we got a show to keep ro- rocking on. So uh, let's go into this. Why your genes rarely determine your fate. I can't wait to see what this is all about. Mr. Fish, if you please. This is about the great nature versus nurture debate, where we have a lot of people who have grown up with the idea that since our genes determine everything, they should determine literally everything, not just how we look and how we age, but also what our life outcomes are, how intelligent we are going to be, how athletic we're going to be, what our talents are. And the question has always been, is is that really true? Do our genes really determine everything at birth? Or does the environment play just as an important or even larger role in the end? Mm. And it's not actually a trivial debate because we don't necessarily want to base policies on the idea that people uh, that people's natural abilities are determined from birth we also don't want to make policy based on the idea that there are certain things about us we can change when science says we can't Mm. so it is very important to try and figure out how much of our life outcomes are nature and how much are nurture this is Fascinating stuff uh, because, you know, you could have a debate with your friends and loved ones about this very topic for hours and hours and hours. And it's so compelling. Thing. So here's the thing with, with my take on this, Greg, is that we know evolution is real, right? And, and there's so many reasons to believe that it's real. Look at the evidence. Uh, just it's obvious. It, it's as clear as day. But no one is suggesting that humans are the final form I mean, in our current existence, that this is the final form of humanity. And in your article, I know you touch on life expectancy, but it's come such a long way from where it was even 150 years ago. So genetically speaking, does it not make sense that maybe there is that next level of human existence, if that makes any sense? Well, the question is, what is the next level? Mm. Because evolution really just worries about survival. It's not necessarily worried about what we're going to achieve. And this is kind of really where we get into the meat of this debate. So there has been a lot of thought on the subject that some people must have superior genes and some people must have inferior genes. And this is really kind of the basis of eugenics and something that has brought countless horrors in the past century. Mm -hmm. And the thought is unfortunately alive and well today, where let's say there's a group that's been discriminated against, has has been denied many opportunities, has been pushed in certain professions or in certain fields. um, And then 
you have people under the guise of science tabulate the data from essentially systemic racism and discrimination and say, see, these people are predetermined to do this, and this must be in their genes, and we have the data to prove it, and therefore they are not as good of a people as, say, another favored group. And, mm-hmm. they, and and there's all sorts of, and basically this thought is still being laundered today. You can still, you're like, you can still hear it on some, like, very popular podcasts and some, there's definitely people coming in and spreading it around. Um, and they're doing this under the guise of science. Uh, the reality, however, is that a lot of these determinations are not really based on anything other than the actual results of the discrimination. Because when you actually look at genes, you could say, and there have been studies that essentially have pointed out that there are certain genes that are correlated with graduating from high school and going into college and complete and having a higher chance of completing college successfully. But from an evolutionary standpoint, it really doesn't matter whether you complete high school or complete college. What really matters is Did you survive whatever threats were there in the environment? Hmm. Are you able to digest the food that's available to you without any side effects or problems? And are you capable of reproducing efficiently enough to replace yourself or generate more of your offspring to continue the species? That's what evolution cares about. If we were to go in and, and completely redesign our academic system, those genes might have absolutely no longer any correlation with what our life outcomes are going to be. And in fact, whenever we take a look at all of these studies that say, oh, certain genes show that you can do this, and certain genes show you can do this, and you certain genes show you can do that, and all of these things are correlated somehow to education or income or earnings, uh, we can always just plug in your zip code if you're in the United States and Canada and get an even stronger correlation. Mm. So really, the influence of genes on your life outcomes doesn't really matter. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that genes are completely useless because we do know that genetics allow for certain predispositions. You may be inclined to become a great engineer or a great athlete or a great academic or a great writer uh, there may be a lot of there may be a lot of potential in you for something or or at least features that are that are very positive and will lead you towards uh, greatness in a certain area but without training without that being recognized without that being harnessed that's probably not very likely to go anywhere. So really, in the grand scheme of things, we should be watching for people's predispositions and for people's potential and trying to see what kind of talent we can draw out of them if in that with that natural when we see that natural talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basing any policy on, oh, this person has, uh, these genes expressed in this way, which means X, Y, Z, is basically total bunk. And whenever we retool our academic standards, whenever we retool, uh, let's say, if, if, if we alleviate, uh, if we have poverty alleviation programs, if we have uh, programs that essentially end discrimination against certain groups, the results are going to be far more powerful and they're going to change a lot more lives far quicker than trying to somehow match it to genetics. It simply doesn't work. Right. And to your point, I I think athletics is the one example that we could look at and say, okay, the genetic portion, 
makes sense to a degree because I look at somebody like Usain Bolt, and uh, you know he. Some people say like he's just got that natural talent. His body uh, biomechanics or biometrics or whatever it is you wanted to describe, just the way he moves so quickly, like that's that athletic thing coming through where the genetics obviously played a role. But then you look at all the other wonderfully talented sprinters in the world, like look at Andre de Grasse here in Canada. He's not bigger and taller than anybody else. He's just trained better. And again, that goes to your point as well. The environment in which we're in uh, helps cater the humans that we become. It, yeah, really, the answer is it's complicated. There are definitely parts that are played by both. Uh, and in Depending on on certain people and certain circumstances, uh, it's very difficult to tell which part is more important. But you know, nurture can, and it doesn't. Maybe nurture can't override athletic performance, uh, but it will definitely help what's mm-hmm. what's there. It'll it'll help bring out the best of you. Um, and there's definitely also some some evidence that certain um, intellectual and creative and, and engineering talents may have some genetic roots as well, but we don't know very much about that. Uh, we know that musical talents have some genetic components, but again, the most important things that studies find is that you have to have that practice. You have to be able to push your limits continuously until you figure out this is how much I can do. This is how much, this is how much I'm capable of. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, there, there have been some, some actually kind of creepy experiments to see just how much uh, genetics does contribute to potentially great talent. Um, there was such a thing uh, called the Nobel Sperm Bank, which is exactly what it sounds. It, it collected specimen from uh, people who were considered to be geniuses, and they had very advanced degrees. Many of them won Nobel Prizes or, or accomplished something great in their fields. Um, and it was basically run by eugenicists, you know, let's not mince words here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea is that they were going to produce these, you know, superior new generation of humans. Uh, and if that sounds a little bit Nazi propagandish, yeah, that was basically, it's basically the the redux of the Liebensborn project exactly. uh, from, from World War II. Now, the interesting part is that the results were not very compelling the vast majority of the kids turned out to be fairly average because humanity kind of adheres to a bell curve. And 90% of us are going to fall somewhere on that bell curve. And maybe some of us are going to be extremely talented in certain things and very, very mediocre in others. And that's just how humanity works. That's how genetics works. And that's how statistics works. And in fact, the whole idea of eugenics is really a profound and very racist misunderstanding of a statistical phenomenon known as regression to the mean. If you have a group that is very elite and very exclusive and very advanced, you start measuring their performance. Um, Within that group, the mass majority of them are going to be mediocre. And the more you're going to concentrate and the more you're going to pick out the top, the cream of the crop, the more mediocre they're going to seem on paper because the differences are so small. So if you actually look at IQ tests over the years and IQ scores over the generations, you'll find that humanity is actually performing better and better. We're getting healthier. We're getting stronger. We're taller. um, We're smarter. Than, than our predecessors, which is all 
very, very good. And I know that there's going to be a lot of arguments about that, especially about the smartest part. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to, to say that I completely understand the hesitation. I'm just going by the statistics here. Sure. No, I think so, I, I think you're right. I mean, probably it's true. We are smarter as a civilization, as a species. But social media makes us feel like it's just going the other way around. I think that's yes. that's the downfall and downside of things. I think I think that's exactly it. I think you you've nailed it right there. But again, if you then compare. If you compare over the generations, then yes, humanity is doing better and mm. better and better all the time. If you look at generational sections, it seems like we're basically just stuck in mediocrity. But that's because we're kind of measuring in the group that's just consistently getting better. Right. So understanding how those statistics work already show that the whole idea that there's something that, you know, oh, we need to somehow uh, get in and intervene and make sure that our genes are somehow superior. Otherwise, we're going to be relegated to mediocrity. Just it's not true. It doesn't mm. make sense. And on top of that, our genes, our genes really don't care if we can set if we can set a record in a 100 meter dash. They don't care how many uh, three-point shots we can sink and they don't <laughs> care what we get on our SATs or entrance exams or, or whatever. All of these are arbitrary measures that are created by us that are constantly changed by us as we go along. So as far as evolution is concerned, all of this is stupid and it's nonsense and we really should just be paying attention to how can we identify natural talents how can we help people hone those natural talents mm. in a useful, applicable way to both help them do the thing that they enjoy and are good at and is good for society and uh, be, you know, obviously harness those skills for civilization's benefit? Mm -hmm. um, and how can we, in the meantime, how can we make sure that we're providing the best life for everyone uh, so they can also contribute in whatever way they have to the civilization going forward that, because their contribution is going to ensure that we're that we're constantly improving and that we have more and more talented people appear and they can help invent the new jobs and continue this this virtuous positive cycle moving forward i, I love that point because it's such an important and key factor in all of this is that the way humanity is designed right now it, it, we're not getting the best out of every single person out there like we know that that's why third world countries exist is that they are objectively speaking not with the same opportunities not given the same resources and whether you chalk it up to the way capitalism works or consumerism or to this day in the definition of globalization of industries how certain parts of this globe get better treatment than others there's a whole faction of people millions of people that if they were given the same level playing field who knows how far like our entire species and civilization of humanity would be further along than what it is right now unfortunately it's not going to change overnight, right? We can't just uh, um, fight club and blow up credit card companies and things like that. It's not going to change the world, but something needs to change in order for us to maybe take that critical next step forward. Absolutely, because, and there's also the issue that there are people who are just afraid of giving everyone the same opportunities because they don't know whether they can succeed without mm. somebody else being held back. And that's a, you know, that's kind of also a big failure on our part as a society to say that, no, we're trying to find the best in everyone, you included. We will give you that opportunity, and we don't want you to fail. We just need you to try. Such a profound point. Uh, 
that's the thing. Like fear holds so many people back. And, and really when you look at the entire historical analysis of humanity as uh, as a species, like fear is the one thing that has prevented us from taking that next step. I think that's why the Dark Ages was so disappointing within the historical framework of what we're talking about here, Greg, is that the Renaissance was so spectacular. And then, you know, the Dark Ages, when you compare it side by side, how these two eras kind of transferred from one to another, all that lost opportunity, because when civilization and humanity is going along, like we call it the Golden Age. And when Golden Ages are happening like this, people thrive. And, and and our species thrives, but nobody's really thinking about that on such a global scale anymore. Now it's about how can our community survive? How can our country survive or thrive rather? And, and it feels like we're just kind of bottling ourselves, whereas we should be taking a step back and seeing the bigger picture. I mean, in a sense, that's what climate uh, activists are, are talking about. It's like, hey, stop worrying about border issues. Let's worry about the broader issues. Well, I mean, a big part of it is that the instability in certain regions is going to create more border issues. It's it's all connected because mm. we live on the same planet. We're all going to be affected by massive global changes. That's just the long and short of it. Uh, and really, it, it does come down to the fact that if we are going to – a lot of the problems that hold us back – we have created them. If we're mm. going to create problems for ourselves to then solve at a profit for a few people who don't actually fix the problem or can't or can't fix the problem, but are using the fear of it, using the conspiracy theories generated by it, causing the political turmoil that's created by it for self-enrichment and power, it's really kind of a very stupid game to play because you're essentially wrecking a lot of really important things for really not very much gain and when you're going to be gone if you're part of that problem when you're going to be gone humanity isn't going to say oh well it's so sad that we lost so and so they're going to say oh good good he they're gone all right fantastic they can't <laughs> screw up things anymore now let's fix that burning heap of garbage that they left us no kidding uh, very well said greg i always appreciate this what a fascinating conversation i feel like we're only just at the tip of the iceberg here uh, he is greg fish uh, the world of where you can read more about this uh, very article why your genes rarely determine your fate mr fish always a pleasure uh, enjoy your weekend coming up here and thank you so much always a pleasure Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.